Civilization, and, and I would argue democracy, is a race uh, between education and chaos. And, <laughs> and I think that we have to look at ourselves and say, what is the role of higher education in particular? That was Mark Money, Chancellor of the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee, and our guest today on Office Hours with EAB. You don't want to miss it. Welcome to Office Hours with EAB. We're delighted to have you with us today. And I'm very, very excited about today's guest. I'm Tom Sugar, Vice President for Partnerships at EAB. And I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Chancellor Mark Money of the University of Wisconsin at Milwaukee. Mark uh, is a compelling leader for so many ways, and I am looking forward to unpacking each and every one of those in our conversation today. Uh, welcome, Mark, uh, to Office Hours with EAB. We're delighted to have you. Good morning, Tom. It's great to be here. Thank you. You bet. You know, Mark, uh, we've known each other for a long time, uh, and I was uh, preparing for our, our session today by going back through my calendar. Uh, and what our listeners should know that uh, is most important in my mind in this moment is that uh, you represent uh, the largest institution and the first institution to take up the challenge of the moonshot for equity. And, and you know, when I looked at the calendar, Mark, uh, that conversation started all the way back in December of 2019, uh, when, when you and your colleagues uh, and the other institutions in the moonshot invited me up to, to dinner and a visit to reflect on and think about whether the moonshot for equity was the right match for you. Now think about that listeners, December, 2019, how different the world was in that moment. No pandemic yet, no George Floyd, no Ahmaud Aubrey, no Jacob Blake. Um, and still after all of those experiences, uh, this leader, Mark Money and his colleagues chose to press forward. Mark, I got to take you back to that moment. You know, when you when you think about it, you know, that, that dinner in December, our visits in January and February, and then boom, March hit of 2020 and the pandemic struck. And here you are uh, over a year later and working deeply in the moonshot and so much has been accomplished. What, what made you go forward? When others fell to the wayside, when other regions said, Tom, I got to hit the pause button, you chose to go forward. Why? Well, I think there's two factors. One, when you visited with us, you know, it was at a time that was perfect because we had momentum. And when I say we, there's a powerful partnership across this region. And I think that's the beauty of how uh, the moonshot is structured, that it's not working alone as an institution, but recognizing the collective power. Um, these issues that we're facing societally are so big, no one institution alone can, can really address them adequately. Um, so the partnerships between two-year and four-year educations, the partnerships between K-12, higher ed, all of that has to be part of the system. So you rolled in, EAB really caught us as we were gaining momentum and it was rooted in a social consciousness. And so that was the context, that was number one. And then as we're rolling along, recognizing the inequities, recognizing the, the frankly racial disparities and other gaps that exist, um, in our communities and the role that education plays, the pandemic exacerbated them. And while other communities absolutely had to address those, higher education communities in particular really had their financials turned upside down, enrollments were going sideways, 
Um, we had to let students go. We had to break contracts. I mean, it was really financially devastating. It was, it was existential. It was one of those moments in higher ed. But in that, in all that, 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 that murky fog and uncertainty, we knew one thing was critically important. The hardships and the challenges that were being faced were disproportionate. We saw that immediately. We saw how many fewer students of ours um, had access to technology, had access to, to um, the kinds of, of tools and resources that, that many of us might take for granted. So we said, we have to have even more commitment to closing the racial and equity gaps that exist. And that's the central part of Moonshot. We're eliminating, we're not cutting them by 10 or 20%. We're getting rid of them entirely by 2030. And the only way to do that is to make sure we are committed all the way around. So it was a stand-up moment. And I'm really proud of, of, of our partners in this region from Carthage College, UW Parkside, and Milwaukee Area Technical College that joined UW-Milwaukee and really forged ahead and said, now is the time. This is the social issue of our time. And it didn't just happen at the time of the pandemic. It preceded that. But those conditions um, actually underscore the importance of the work that we're doing together. So that's that's a good look at back in time. Well, you know, one of the things that surprised me most as I prepared for my first visit to Milwaukee was uh, learning that uh, Milwaukee has some of the most segregated high schools in the country. Some of the worst outcomes for uh, black citizens in terms of health and social mobility in the country. Who would have thought Milwaukee, Wisconsin of all places? And I, I remember that was top of mind uh, for you when you decided to organize the Higher Education Regional Alliance. You served as the first chair of that organization, bringing people together to get serious about those disparities. There's a, a real need when you combine those that have been left behind in uh, the, the racial segregation that exists and you combine that with the employer needs, um, you see this huge opportunity. You see this opportunity for education. And, and I'm firmly, uh, just, just one of the most bedrock things about me is that I firmly believe that education is one of the, the, the between education and employment, these two pillars are the answers to so much of the issues that we're facing, not just in this region, but frankly, in society. When you look at the outcomes of um, what education leads to in terms of uh, social mobility, employment, home ownership, health outcomes, uh, incarceration, number of, of different outcomes, that to me is critical. Um, you know, there's a line, and, and I think it's so relevant today, and it's, it's I cannot recall who's, who's, who the, the original uh, author of this line is, but civilization, and, and I would argue democracy, is a race uh, between education and chaos. And, <laughs> and I think that we have to look at ourselves and say, what is the role of higher education in particular? And one of the things that, that, that I noticed having been at UW-Milwaukee for a long time is that we oftentimes can be insular in higher ed and we can do everything to, to try to increase success once students get here, but we don't reach out and we feel like the borders and the boundaries are the physical perimeters of our campus. That's not working. That flat out is not working. And we have to take on the ownership of recognizing in our communities, especially as urban universities, what more we must do. And so that's what I'm, I'm really excited about in terms of the progress that we've made, the actions that we've taken, and especially the mindsets with which we've been attacking these issues. But that's what's needed. And that's what's so cool about our partnership. And we need to do it together. 
Share that that quote again, Mark. It's a compelling one, uh, please, about civilization and chaos. So I've I've added a little bit to it along the way, but but the idea is that that civilization, and I'm arguing democracy today, is truly a race between education and chaos, and which one is getting ahead of the other. I, I think Boy, that that's a that's, big question. That's super powerful in this moment. Super powerful as we as we speak this morning. Uh, on an election day, actually, in this country, a significant yeah. drawing lots of national attention uh, in the week when a trial is beginning in Kenosha, uh, the aftermath of last summer and the the uh, the racial unrest that broke out in Kenosha, part of the, the moonshot for equity, big cultural questions, big uh, questions around education. And, you know, you, you hinted on that. You said, you know, it's time for higher education leaders to really step up and embrace and accept the unique responsibility uh, for leadership that you must provide in your communities. You know, I suppose we can step back and Mark, you remember me, I, I, um, I was a chief of staff in the United States Senate. You know, so I've seen uh, the limitations of government and, and the uh, excesses of partisanship firsthand. I firmly believe that leadership is going to have to come from a lot of different sectors today. Uh, the waiting for uh, government to be functional enough to address these issues uh, is not a, a, a recipe for success. Uh, and so what, that's why it matters so much to me that leaders like you have decided to, to accept these responsibilities. But, you know, it's so much more than that. I remember our conversation, I have these all around the country too, Mark, where uh, many uh, university presidents and community college presidents uh, look at the Moonshot for Equity agenda look at the 15 best practices that are required and the, the synergistic connections with technology. And they like to say, we're already doing that. We're already doing that. And you know, Mark, they're thinking about the, we're already doing that in a very siloed approach. And they may be uh, committed leaders. They may have advanced student success initiatives, but they've been doing it within their institutions, not between their institutions. And that's where I wanna go next. This, this notion of leadership, through connectedness, connectedness, right? Uh, really understanding that your responsibilities aren't just to yourselves, but it's to your larger community, and especially in partnership with your other higher education uh, leaders. So to, you guys were working on reforms at UWM. You were, you were focused on many of these things. Where, why did you see the value of the moonshot and starting to create those uh, stronger connections with your peers? You know, the issue that you point out is a barrier to progress that I've seen, not just at UW-Milwaukee, but frankly, all the institutions, and we're talking about 18 different institutions with which we partner. And that is this idea that, that we're doing it, or we're already, uh, we're already working on student success. And they can trot out any academic institution across this country, you can trot out um, their formulas, their paths, and, and what they're working on. And boy, I, I admire and I, I, I uphold and, 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 and truly, um, uh, do do uh, think those are the, the right tracks. But I ask this question, how much of that is lip service versus how much of that is student service? And I really ask people to ask the fundamental question that my colleague, Vicki Martin, who's the president of MATC, said when she continued to encounter that same issue within her institution and when others were expressing this, we're already doing it. She said, yeah, and how's that working for you? Look at the data. I'm sorry, look at the data. I've got to repeat that. Look internally, look at your gaps. 
And I can almost guarantee that you would say your academic institution is not A, graduating um, students at a high enough rate, and B, especially when we look at gaps between uh, different student populations that we serve. Very few academic institutions in this country are. I would go so far as to say, if we were to evaluate by using the traditional standards of four-year and six-year graduation rates, Tom, it's unacceptable. We're not passing in an academic institution. I would not give us even a C grade. As an academic, as an academic industry, you cannot have a six-year uh, average national graduation rate that's less than 50%. You can't have a four-year graduation rate in the 20s and then go lower than that when you're talking about different racial populations that we serve. So those are, those are things that I look at and I go back to this idea of, of even in public education where we're so accessible, um, is, it, is it the price point alone or are there other avenues, other aspects? So let's talk in specific detail about a few of those. Transfer situations. Transfer situations are a classic one where we can have all sorts of policies and even articulation agreements. And we can take pride in the number of articulation agreements. But in reality, when you talk to students, those don't work a lot of times. So what are we doing to take physically our advisors and go into two-year colleges, to go into high schools, to really spend time, listen to the voice of the customer, the student, and live a day in their life and really work through what those processes are. I can tell you, we thought we were pretty good. And then our provost's son was trying to transfer from, <laughs> he was trying to transfer. And he started saying, dad, how does this work? And the pro, our own provost got into understanding the problems with, we claim we do this, and yet there's three different confusing aspects on the website. It's just, it's just these little barriers. It's all well, these little there, things. There's, there, there's so much to unpack there. You hit on a couple of very, very important themes, Mark. Um, this notion of transfer, and I'm going to open that up with you a little bit because I really do think that's the next stage of the work. But it's the, the cross-institutional aspect of it. You know, again, you know, you guys were looking at many things, had tried many things. You know, and some would say, okay, these graduation rates are what we want. We have to do even more internally to fix them. But what you discovered in the moonshot a year into it now is that your internal efforts at reform are actually accelerated by working simultaneously across institutions. I mean, peer pressure is a real thing. Yeah. You know, when folks gather together on a task force around academic holds or financial holds is one example, something you guys have worked on. You start comparing notes, institution to institution. You see the best practices. You hear the advice from experts like Georgia State, who's a national mentor in the moonshot. And then you go, oh my gosh, we have studied this thing forever. We have admired this problem in perpetuity. We've audited our processes, but we never pulled the trigger. And when you sit there around the table with your collaborator, your collaborators, your, your peers academically in the two-year sector, in the private sector, in the four-year sector, and you're comparing notes, you're a little embarrassed, honestly, that you haven't gotten the work done. And so the, 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 the stage was set, the table was set for action, but it was the cross-institutional work that made you pull the trigger. Tell us about that, Mark, and tell us about the wonderful result you already had on that issue alone around retention grants and yeah. holds. You know, 
the power comes. This is this is a great great question you're asking because it deals with um, both the mechanical issues, but also the bigger and what I consider more important cultural ethos. And let me explain what I mean by that. EAB brought to the table things around equity mindedness training, working with Sean Harper and colleagues at USC, uh, working with this, this mindset and learning together. So, so absolutely. Um, but looking internally at registration holds and how they could be reformed and transfer pathways. These are mechanical aspects. To your point, we've admired, we've, we've known about these issues, but what happened with EAB and Moonshot and what I really think is the power and the true, I call it the POW, what I really like about this is the focus and accountability. And what that's driven is today, 350 more students are on my campus because of elimination of artificial barriers, these minuscule things that we knocked out. We had like 28 different holds, reasons why students couldn't register. We knocked them out, we took them out. We said, that is holding students back. And you know, the net cost for us was trivial in the big scheme of things, but students between that and our retention grants, the, the additional recognizing the impact of the pandemic. We have today 450 more students that started college this fall that otherwise would not have been able to continue. And when you're talking about retention, when you're talking about graduation and ultimately time to paycheck, that is powerful. And think about the magnification of that semester over semester and, and how the magnification of that really increases. But again, it comes down to accountability and focus and that's the differentiator. It's a cultural ethos toward getting things done. And that's yeah. where Georgia State, Cal State, Fullerton, the Emerald Colleges, the best practices, sharing those, learning from others, with others, that's powerful. Yeah, your colleague, uh, Vicki Martin, the president of Milwaukee Area Technical College, told me last week that they have accomplished more with the moonshot in a shorter period of time than anything else they've done before. And, and the real differentiator is the cross-institutional work. I, I had the pleasure, Mark, of tuning into the Transfer Pathways Task Force, uh, listening to, to uh, the folks across Milwaukee, uh, your team members and, and others working together on those issues. And it was exciting. What your, one of your, uh, your staff, uh, one of your uh, vice provosts said out loud to the group, isn't this amazing? We're together doing the things that we always dreamed of, but never got around to doing. And, and, and that is the power of the moonshot. But that, that transfer pathway stuff, I want to go back to your point about transfer. Because as I reflect on all that we've learned these last dozen years or so, Mark, and you know, I, as you know, I, I helped co-found Complete College America. And I think back to 2009, where people were still throwing rotten fruit at me when I just talked about their own data. I mean, they would give me the data, I would show it back to them, I would focus them on time to degree or comes for remedial students or part-time students or credits to degree, what have you. And it was complete deny, denial, they, they didn't want to accept it. But we're not there now. People want to do the work. They're running to the work. And so it's an exciting thing. But I think, okay, so here we are. So what next? You know, what is the next phase of the work? The best practices have been discovered. The data has been recognized. Internal efforts within two-year institutions, within four-year institutions, in those silos has been underway for some time. I really do believe the next phase of the college completion movement and the essential element, if we're truly serious about equity, 
is transfer. And when I say transfer, I, I get, I mean, I've shared this with you before, Mark, I get frustrated almost with that, the use of that word now. It's a, it's a well understood word. Uh, it's been around for a long time, but it also is one that is sort of reflexively dismissed uh, by saying what you said. We've got an articulation agreement for that. Oh, we've got an articulation agreement for that, Tom. Brush it off the shoulder, done. And yet we do know, especially when you think about transfer through an equity lens, the transfer is multidimensional. It's not just an academic process. It's a financial one. It's a cultural one. It's a psychological one when you think about a sense of belongingness. As I've been reflecting on it, Mark, it, it, I feel like we need a new word. You know, if you want people to do something differently or to think differently about something, sometimes it requires us to rebrand it. So when you really think about this moment we're in, maybe we need to dismiss the old notion of transfer or at least expand it into transitions or something like that. Some, some more wholesome, uh, supportive uh, experience where students kind of feel pulled into the four-year institution instead of pushed out of the community college. What do you think about that? I think you're right. I think that naming something is is um, uh, often often one of the most important things we can do to recognize that what's currently in place isn't working. I'll make a couple of key points. One is that um, what I'm seeing today for greater connections is we're we're taking we're taking the problems we've had historically with transfers and, and trying to own that. And, and and Tom, I think implicit in this discussion, we ought to make something explicit. We need to oftentimes uh, recognize that we're a big part of the problem. It's not easy to say, uh, but we need to own that and say that it's no longer just um, uh, you know something that, that that we need an improved paper process or we need an improved website or we need to improve the the, the one way communication. But we need to immerse ourselves. And let me give a couple of examples that are going to I think dramatically transform uh, the concept of transfers. We see more institutions doing it. Uh, number one is is the the idea of of um, really dual enrollment types of situations, dual admissions. Whether you come into a two year institution, and you're automatically accepted. So think about a transfer. We call it the technology transfer partnership that we have with Parkside and Gateway Technical College. So students can enter, and they are automatically accepted into our four year engineering degree program as freshmen. And then they have to meet certain criteria. They have to meet with advisors. They have to hit certain grade points. They have to take certain courses. But that changes the whole dynamic. But they're accepted right out of high school into a program like that. So those students who want to go, and, and we know this in terms of the population of two-year institutions, how many students want to go to four-year degrees? But the majority of them don't because we don't have enough of those changed relationships in place. And that's what a lot of it is about. Yeah, I can help you with that data point, actually. When you ask uh, community college uh, students in this country on their first day, what do they aspire to achieve? 85% of community college students on their first day will say, I want a bachelor's degree. And, and Mark, you know, they get it. They get it. There are associate degrees. There are certificates of economic value. They're rare, but they, but they exist. But, but we all know that the bachelor's degree has become the ticket to the middle class. Yeah. And so what a wonderful opportunity. What a wonderful thing that 85% of them say they want one. And what a tragedy that only 25% of them ever transfer. And even worse, 
you know, when you look at the outcomes based on race and income, first generation status, you know, even fewer are successfully moving forward. And so why is that? We have to own that. Like you said, we have to own that. And God bless you. You know, you're a four-year uh, president, uh, uh, an institution with 26,000 students in the heart of your community. And you're, you're owning the fact that too often it's the four-year institution that's been the problem child, right? And so owning that and, and thinking more creatively about uh, making the dream of a bachelor's degree possible at the earliest possible moment is the kind of way we need to rethink uh, our, our responsibilities. I think if you talk to Vicki Martin, who's the president of our biggest area of technical college, frankly, the biggest in the state, which is, by the way, our largest provider of students. Okay, we get more transfer students than any other four-year institution in the state, and, and more Vicki students come to <laughs> UWM. It's a wonderful pipeline. It's one that we've had a lot of intentionality about, uh, but we try to establish those types of relationships with two-year colleges across the state. It's vitally important for us. So this concept is, is really important. And, you know, my view, some people say, well, aren't you concerned about the Promise program at MATC? Or aren't you worried about, you know, them taking our students that would come here? My view is the more that Vicki and MATC and other technical and two-year colleges are successful, the more that is success for me because it lowers the price point. It gives them a better economic and confidential uh, confidence in, in their, their footing. And here's an interesting stat I might have shared with you earlier. When we look at success in our graduate programs, both master's, professional degrees, and doctorate, the most successful students in UW-Milwaukee in those graduate courses, their background consistently is the two-year college pipeline. Isn't that an interesting yeah, stat? Yeah, there you go. There you it, go. Is, it is amazing. So the grounding, the, the foundations that they get, and I also like to think the work ethic. I, I have to acknowledge that. Our students are pretty special. And uh, it's, a, it's a real honor to be able to work with them. But Tom, more broadly, I also think, again, back to the societal question, you know, 90% of Milwaukee public schools, K-12, uh, are of color. And we have taken it upon ourselves uh, to really immerse ourselves with dual enrollment and going into high schools, going into uh, settings where we have better advising, better pathways. And I'll be the first to tell you, we got a long way to go. Do not by any means think that, oh, Mark's doing it all right. This is a panacea. It's all working. The issues are so significant. They're so deeply rooted, decades and decades of, of, of issues. Um, but we've recognized that we cannot, you mentioned remedial uh, education earlier. Tom, we can't address, in, 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 you know, if, if, if there's been deficiencies in math or reading or, or any, any study habits or sociocultural support, we cannot, once somebody gets to college, fix those or address those. We need, and that's what started us on this journey long ago, was where we really moved to help uh, where we could and to be helped by uh, our K-12 partners for us to understand uh, issues around curriculum alignment, for us to understand much more through actual visits, being yeah. on the ground, going into those high schools, yeah. understanding what it's like to have a completely different background. Um, and that's why we do so much to try to support our uh, K-12 system as well as tech schools. Well, I told you, you know, this whole articulation agreement excuse frustrates me. Another one that, another uh, excuse that frustrates me um, is this, this, this fear that everybody has about the demographic cliff. The demographic cliff, you know, alert, alert, you know, we're, you know, we're gonna have fewer students. And, you know, you guys, you know, people in education are always challenging us to have a growth mindset. 
And yet when they talk about the demographic cliff, they do exactly the opposite. Because the demographic cliff is all based around the idea that we're gonna have fewer white wealthy students. Uh-oh, the ones we've always depended on to feed our pipeline. Instead, a growth mindset would say, but you know what? There are a lot of students who need uh, a higher education. Uh, there are students that look a lot differently than we've, we're accustomed to. Uh, they come to us with greater struggles, but there's enough of them. And so, you know, when you think about the demographic cliff, it's sort of based on the, as the assumption that the students of color, low-income students, first-generation students, are kind of, kind of continue to have the outcomes they've always had. And therefore, the cliff exists. Well, yes, that's true if we continue to do the things that we've always done, right? But a growth mindset suggests that if we serve those students more effectively, they will be retained and they will succeed and they will produce important outcomes for our entire community. I noticed in a recent report by the Center on Workforce at Georgetown University that there are actually estimating mark that the racial disparities, income disparities, the equity gaps, in higher education cost this country $956 billion annually in lost economic power. When you think about Milwaukee, the loss of manufacturing jobs, social mobility, the great reset that's going on right now. Education is the way to address it. Exactly. We have left so many people behind, generations behind. Um, we have Tom, the sad staff is that um, one out of every two black men in Milwaukee has served time in prison. That is a failure of education. That is a failure of society. And that's why closing the equity gap is the most important thing that we can be doing to address those generations left behind. We're only as strong as a community as those that are um, uh, left behind, those, those that, that, that are the weakest. And with a large population, uh, who have been disenfranchised, marginalized in so many ways, I continue to argue the way to bring the two Milwaukee's together is through education and employment. It's the answer. And that's why I'm so proud of what we're doing with you and know that this is truly not just the issue. You know, I can't change national landscape of higher education, but where I can influence it, and with your help, um, the coalition that we've built, it is the greatest hope that we, we absolutely have for this region to make a bigger difference in the future. I'd also acknowledge that those individuals that are left behind aren't all going to find a four-year degree um, as the answer. It's not realistic, but that's where, again, working together and, and the powerful synergies that we have through coalition building, and EAB is a big part of this, is to find um, answers. Sometimes it's badges and certificates. Uh, sometimes it is just that two-year degree, but some education is better than no education, um, but we don't want to get into a situation where we continue to have individuals who accumulate debt that don't have something to, to, to translate into higher wages, higher uh, employment, mobility. Uh, so those are all collective goals. And what's, you know, what, what I really like is the greater attention to this by raising our culture, the equity mindedness, uh, the types of things, the tools that you're giving us, and um, that frankly, I think you're finding a lot of people very hungry for and, and eager to engage in. And so what I love about this is historically, you know, student success might've been owned in one part of a campus, but now we're broadcasting it. It's bringing greater awareness, education, and engagement. Just yesterday, 
I brought my entire leadership team together around discussions of Moonshot student success. And it's a wonderful mantle. It's a wonderful um, uh, engagement tool for individuals as diverse as our HR, our legal, our um, athletics, all together, not just the traditional undergraduate and you know, office of admissions or um, some of our advisory staff. Um, so it's a really powerful tool. And I can't say enough about how much it's done for us in a short period. Thank you, Mark. I, I appreciate that. I, I want to just offer a couple final comments here and, and ask you to respond to them. And, and then we'll uh, we'll get back to our busy days. Um, you know, I've been talking about the moonshot all around the country. Mark, you've been very helpful and other leaders across Milwaukee and talking to regions uh, from coast to coast uh, about the impact the moonshot has had for you guys and and uh, the difference it can make uh, for them too. Uh, and I, I deeply appreciate that. As you know, we announced two additional Moonshot for Equity regions. Uh, the greater Philadelphia area is a rapidly growing ecosystem and uh, the Cincinnati and Northern Kentucky area. So now three ecosystems in the Moonshot for Equity and we're on the hunt uh, for four more uh, to get our, our, our goal of seven uh, ecosystems in this wonderful national learning network. At this moment, I alluded to this earlier, this moment of division, uh, cultural strife, raw politics, excessive partisanship. Um, I am sad to say that uh, for some, the word equity has become an ugly word. Uh, it's being used in a negative way. I, I had that experience with one region we were talking to and I reflected on it, Mark. I, I said, well, I suppose I could have called it the moonshot for student success. But you know why I didn't? Because of all the things we talked about today, because of the honest approach that we have to take about what it's going to take in order to address these longstanding issues. And I remind our listeners that the moonshot for equity has three dimensions. We measure that success based on race, ethnicity, based on income, and based on first-generation status. And I, I want to I wrap up today by sharing uh, the old uh, uh, JFK speech, uh, a great line from the old JFK speech, which sort of summarizes why that goal should be the one that we shoot for. When JFK was talking about the moonshot uh, 60 years ago and giving his famous speech in Houston, he said that they needed to go to the moon because, quote, that goal will serve to organize and measure the best of our energies and skills. Because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept, one we are unwilling to postpone, and one which we intend to win. He was saying that there's no better way to know how good we are at this stuff than this audacious goal. Because when we accomplish it, we'll lift everyone up. Mm -hmm transform our society. We'll have all kinds of spinoff benefits. And so go for the big audacious thing and enjoy all the benefits. All students will do better because of the moonshot for equity. But those who will be most helped are those who've been most often left behind. And so thank you, friend, for embracing that goal and owning it. And, and I wanna recognize that uh, there's a special announcement that's coming up. Uh, you guys have won the EAB Connect Connectedness Award, Connectedness Award. Now, I will say, Mark, traditionally that award has been given to institutions that were just doing a good job of being better connected within their campuses. 
For the first time, this award is being given in recognition of connectedness to each other across the entire region. So congratulations, my friend, on that national recognition. It's well-deserved. Well, thank you, Tom. We're exceptionally proud of that. And, you know, the reasons that you just mentioned for uh, Moonshot, the, the JFK, um, and your passion, your charisma, these are the things that um, are, are so uh, well well organized and, and, and well thought of here on our campus. And, and uh, you've really helped make it. And, and we're just especially proud to share uh, this award with our friends at Carthage, Milwaukee Area Technical College and UW Parkside. It's a special honor. And, and um, uh, we, we, you know, in the last year since we've announced this in October, our, our participation in Moonshot, uh, we've made great progress. We still have much in front of us, uh, but we've got smiles on our faces and we've got a lot of success already. And it's just going to continue to grow. And I, I couldn't be more optimistic about the future, um, especially with the tools that, that we have and, and the continued uh, culture that we'll, we'll create and, and implement as we go forward. Thank you so much, Chancellor Mark Boney from the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee. You've been a wonderful uh, guest today and a significant and substantial leader for our entire country. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate your time and our involvement here. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week when we take a fresh look at how colleges are rethinking space utilization on campus to better accommodate a hybrid working environment. Until then, thank you for your time.